Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. We also just wanted to take a minute to let you know about our brand new online course, Trust Your Body Again, which is launching today. The course is only available until June 15th. That's this Friday. So sign up now. The course is for anyone who has experienced pregnancy loss and wants to trust their body again. You might be pregnant now. You might be a few weeks away from your due date. You might be early on. You might not be pregnant, but really wanting to get pregnant in the future, but just feel terrified and stuck. And no matter what, this course is for you. If you want to redefine trust and learn what that really means, why it's worth it. If you want to learn tools for managing anxiety and negative thoughts, and especially if you want to experience joy and connection in your pregnancy and birth experience. Again, the course is only available until this Friday. That's June 15th at 11.59 p.m. So you can go to www.trustyourbodyagain.com again.com to sign up. You'll see all of the details there and I can't wait to see you on the inside. Really strong feeling of like, that wasn't traumatic. It was safe. We're all okay. That really was not how it's supposed to be. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Motherbirth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everyone, welcome to Motherbirth today. We have a very special guest today. We're really excited. I'm sitting in the room with her and I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm here with Sarah Rosser and Laura is Skyping in with us. We are really excited to talk to Sarah today. She's going to share her story with us, which includes all different kinds of aspects of motherhood. So Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Um, my name is Sarah Rosser and I live here close to Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I am an apprentice at the farm, uh, Midwifery Center, and mm-hmm. I'm also a mother of, that's actually kind of a tough question, but two at <laughs> least. <laughs> at least two. And then I also have an exchange student, so yeah, mother of three. Yes. And Sarah is pregnant now as a surrogate, so right. that will be part of her story. We'll get into that in a little bit. Yes. Um but I would love to hear, for, for any of you guys listening, probably lots of you know about the farm. The farm is um, the birthing center and community that was started back way back in the late 60s, right? Early 70s. Early yeah. 70s. Okay. And so it was it was founded by Ina Mae Gaskin and a few other people at that time. Um, so many of you guys have heard of Ina Mae. You've maybe read her book, Spiritual Midwifery, or um, her Guide to Childbirth. Um, that's actually how I met Sarah because I knew, I followed her on Instagram and realized that she lived in the Nashville area where I was coming and of course wanted to connect with her and um, see the farm. So she gave me a tour last week, which was really fun and exciting. And we got to connect on a lot of levels. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about kind of how you came to that work and you are, um, a midwife as well. Um, so tell us kind of how that all started for you. 
Sure. Well, I think, you know, as in probably a lot of birth workers, I I was pulled into that after giving birth and because of Mm -hmm. my birth experience. Um, I gave birth to my daughter when I was 21. I was pretty young and my husband and I weren't quite ready to have kids yet. Mm -hmm. And so, um, or we, we didn't think we were. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, so I didn't know a lot about childbirth before I had her and, um, went into it just with kind of an intuitive feeling that I didn't need a lot of intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in the hospital environment, I I had her in Birmingham, Alabama, where midwifery is not legal. Wow. It wasn't at the time, at least. They've actually just recently passed some laws that make make it a little bit more midwifery-friendly. But mm-hmm. um, So I, I had her in the hospital environment, and um, kind of the domino effect of interventions started. And so yeah. after I had her, I just had this really strong feeling of, like, that wasn't traumatic. It was safe. We're all okay. That really was not how it's supposed to be. Mm. And um, for me, at least, and for some folks, it probably was exactly how they would I, they would want a yeah. birth to go. But for me, it was not exactly what I had in mind. And it made me really start looking into midwifery. Um, I had actually called a midwife while I was pregnant with her to see about maybe having a home birth. It, she was like an underground midwife that yeah. wasn't supposed to be. West or right, wild south. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think she had truly been to jail a few times wow. for practicing. And um, and uh, so I interviewed with her and I thought we were... When was this, Sarah? Sorry. This is this was like in 2008 when I was pregnant with my daughter. Okay. Okay. And so, um, okay. so <laughs> I thought things were going well between she and I. And then she found out that my dad was a sheriff in our county. Ooh. And she uh, very kindly declined to take me as a yeah. client. And I, I'm not frustrated with her mm-hmm. about that at all. I'm very frustrated with the legislation that made her mm-hmm. put her in that position. Yeah. Um, anyway, so midwifery was on my mind beforehand, but then after that birth experience, it was heavily on my mind. So I started buying books like Spiritual Midwifery and mm-hmm. Anime's, Anime's Guide to Childbirth and, and you know Birth Partner and those kinds of books. And um, what that once I got through those kinds of books, I still wanted more. So I went and printed out. Back then, I, I guess it was the World Health Organization had a textbook for midwives, but it was like a PDF, and this is before Kindles, I guess. And yeah. so I had to like go to Staples <laughs> and get a one hundred and something dollar printout of, wow. of the, the most expensive book, book. <laughs> right? Um, and started reading through that, and um, so then. Uh, this was probably 2011. My husband graduated from college and started looking for some jobs, and he was considering some out-of-state stuff. And I was like, here are some states where midwifery is legal, mm. and I'd like for you to please choose from one of those states. <laughs> here are your options. <laughs> and fortunately, he chose Tennessee, and um, we landed here. And um, once we really got settled after a year or so, I started looking into apprenticing to be a midwife, and he actually is the one that said, hey, you know, we're actually really close to the farm, hmm. and I was so turned on that he knew what the farm was, and I was— um, It was a I great did, night. Then. Yes, yes, <laughs> but he, I, I didn't think he was right. I was like, no, no, the farm's like in Knoxville or something. It's not very close to here. Well, it was 45 minutes from my house, which— 
you've been out where I live, Melissa, well, yeah. like <laughs> I'm 45 minutes from everything. So that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I um, ended up getting an apprenticeship at the farm and studying there. That's kind of wow. how I ended up in midwifery. And did you consider other options or once you knew that the farm was nearby, was it like, I just want to be there? <laughs> so I made a list of all of the midwives that I wanted to work that I, that I knew of in the area and in order of who I'd like to work for the most. <laughs> and the very first person I emailed was, was Deborah Flowers at the farm. And I just, from her birth stories and spiritual midwifery and her website, I just felt like really connected to her. Sometimes people will say, we look alike or I look like her daughter. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. Like I yeah. felt connected. You have like a little kismet connection. Yes, yes. Of some sort. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so I emailed her first, didn't hear from her for a while. So I moved on to emailing some other folks, some other farm midwives, but also like midwives that weren't at the farm and um, had made a few connections with different people. Well, weeks later, Deborah emailed me back and said, hey, that's crazy. I'm actually thinking about taking on an apprentice. Will you give me a call and give me your phone number? And I, I got that email like the second it came through. And so I paced around my house for 10 minutes because I told myself I didn't need to call her like the second the email it came through. It seems a little desperate. I always have that issue. I'm like, right. okay, three minutes. Is three minutes enough time before right. I respond to this? Right. Uh, maybe seven. Let's go with seven. So I probably didn't make it the full 10 minutes, but I called her and we just like really connected and it just, it worked out. And yeah. so um, I started attending MERS with her. That was about five years ago. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool to see you at the farm. We we went on a little walk and ran into Pamela Hunt. Yes. And, you know, it's like you can tell that there's that the connections are really deep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really noticed like that sort of grandmotherly feeling that mm-hmm. she had towards you. Oh, and yes. I can imagine you have something similar with Deborah. Yes, absolutely. And um, Deborah is, is one of the, other than me, the youngest midwife. She's in her 60s. Um, yeah. So she's maybe more like a, a a mother figure to me, but yes, Pamela has the grandmother effect on most people, yeah. um, clients, and and everyone. She's just such a warm lady. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. So let's go back a little bit to your birth with your daughter. So sure. you, you end up having this hospital birth after mm-hmm. considering some other options and just deciding that that's not going right. to be realistic for your time and place in right. history. Um, what did you feel like the hospital birth was a, was that a disappointing track or did you just feel like, okay, well, this is how it's going to be? Yeah. Once the home birth idea fell through, there really weren't any other options there. There were no birth centers. CNMs were really not practicing in any of our local hospitals. And so I found an OBGYN who seemed very open. And of course, that's not who I got in labor. Mm, right. um, I got the one OBGYN I'd never met before. Um, and he walks in, you know, with his catcher's med at the last minute and actually was, was extremely, um, I guess, empowering to me. Uh, mm. one of the first things he said when he walked in, I said, I was pushing and, and Stevie was almost out. And I said, are you, are you going to cut me? And he looked me in the eyes and he said, I work for you, not the other way around. Wow. And so you tell me what to do. And I was like, well, no, I don't want you to cut me. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> but, you know, but before that moment, you know, I got there and I, I, my water had been broken for 
honestly, probably over 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't tell them that. I think I told them 12 hours or something. Um, it had just been leaking, and at first I wasn't sure it was my water that was broken. And then um, once I was sure that's what it was, I started trying to make myself go into labor. I started, I tried yeah. castor oil. In hindsight, I didn't take enough castor oil to do anything. Um, I ran. I did, you know, I did all the things that I thought I could do to make myself go into labor, and I just couldn't. Yeah. I finally admitted to my mom. That was on a Friday. And on Sunday night, I admitted to my mom, I think my water's broken. Like, I'm going to have to make Gabe go get me, like, some Depends because I'm leaking so much. <laughs> and she was like, good gosh, Sarah Beth, you have to go to the hospital. You can't just stay home. So, again, I did not know very much about birth. And so I go into the hospital and I, I'm dishonest about how long my my um, water's been broken because I thought they're just going to like throw me in for a C-section when they find out how long my water's been ruptured. Yeah. Well, so sure enough, they start me on some Pitocin and that was just the beginning. You know, it, I felt like I was managing contractions fairly well, um, but they weren't letting me get out of the bed. I had to stay on constant monitoring and then uh, and then when I, I think I was about, I was actually almost seven centimeters and I still felt like I was handling things well. <laughs> and my nurse was like, you really don't have much longer before we take you in for a C-section. I would recommend getting an epidural so that maybe you relax during these contractions more. And I thought, well, goodness, anything, sure. And so, so they do the, the epidural. And now looking back, goodness, from when they started Pitocin, I was not dilated at all yeah. until I had Stevie was only like 10 and a half hours. So I don't know. That's it wasn't crazy. that big of a deal. <laughs> right. Well, if, and, yeah. I mean, because you were progressing so, right. so well. Yes. I mean, yes. that's right. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. So I had the epidural and then... Um, you know, overall things went really smoothly. Like she, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't push for very long. The epidural worked. It didn't cause me any long-term problems like you read about sometimes. And, um, you know, overall was not a bad experience. It just wasn't what I had wanted. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, so that left me a little like, you know, I feel like, and I remember thinking this, I hear people say this a lot now, but I feel like if it were men giving birth, they would be more in charge of their births. Yeah. But but we're we're being treated a little bit differently sometimes in in the obstetrical environment. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> yeah, I do. I always wonder about that too cuz I I've heard a similar um I guess I don't even know what you would call that. I guess it's an opinion or <laughs> hypothesis, but I also think sometimes that I don't know if that is true. I feel like women are really resilient and, and kind of taking on more. So yes. I feel like yeah. we might be more likely to actually endure. <laughs> yeah, definitely more. Than we, definitely. Than we are too. Yeah. 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 I see that too. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it is both because I think that we are so resilient and I think that we have so much innate power and intuition capacity. and capacity. capacity. Oh, that's such a good word. Yeah. So mm-hmm. much capacity. Yeah. Yes. Um, but we are also, especially in healthcare environments, so used to like subduing ourselves mm-hmm. and, you know, putting ourselves in sort of that lower or inferior role that just is in, you know, so inherent to our experience of, of our culture. It's, right. yeah, it's yeah. a very, very interesting dynamic. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when Stevie was born, how did you, how was your postpartum transition with her? 
you know, fair, fairly good. Um, I didn't experience a lot of um, postpartum depression, but um, yeah, I, I, I think we had a really good postpartum period together. Breastfeeding went fairly well. Um, I didn't, oh goodness, I would be so, I, if my clients went back to work three weeks after they gave birth, I went back to work three weeks after I gave birth. I was a hairstylist. Mm. So I was on my feet all day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, that, I I didn't treat myself as well as I should have as far as that goes, but, um, Mm. I'm a bit of a busy body. And in some ways I feel like that helped me mentally working full time, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but we we had a we had a pretty good postpartum experience, and then when she was about eighteen months old, we um, decided we were ready for our next child and that we wanted to adopt, which was something that we had said that we wanted to do before um, we even got married. Before we mm-hmm. talked about kids, we we talked about adoption, and so that felt like how we were going to complete our family. Yeah. So we started the process to adopt my son. And you were you were twenty one when you had Stevie, right? And so you start this next process uh-huh. you know, eighteen months later. So right. you were so young to yes. have such a defined sense of, you know, values or mm. or direction or mission for your family. I mean, that's I feel like a really not necessarily unique, but but really special thing to have. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah I've, I've certainly I've not always been right, but I'm I'm very sure yeah. <laughs> of whatever it is that I'm doing at that moment. Yeah. And adoption was on our hearts. Both my my husband has an adopted brother, and my parents tried to adopt when I was younger. So I think it was just kind of on our radar already. Yeah. And um, we were at least at the time the youngest people to adopt from Ethiopia. Mm. Um, we were 23 mm-hmm. when we brought Silas home. That's so young. It was pretty young. Yeah. Yep. And we we chose Ethiopia specifically because we were not old enough to adopt in the states. We weren't old really? enough to adopt from a lot of countries. What was the what was the age limit? I think it was 25. I don't know if it still it still is. Mm-hmm. And that might be different, you know, if you're adopting a family member like mm-hmm. a, you know a, a niece or a nephew that needs to be adopted or something. That might be a different thing, mm-hmm. but just to apply for domestic adoption in the US, you had to be 25. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what if it's if that's still the case. You know, yeah, or if it's state to state it may be, or organization it may be. by organization. It may be state to state. I just, I've ne- yeah, I've never really thought about that. Yeah, for sure. Maybe just because it is an anomaly to be young and ready to adopt. Well, and I think most of the stories, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the stories that we hear of adoption are, you know, people who've experienced infertility that right. you know are considering that as an option, and mm-hmm. and that may be happening a little later in their journey. They may be in their late twenties or thirties when that's when that's occurring. So right. I've, I've just never even heard it come up that, sure. uh, that there's an age limit. And yeah. it actually makes sense that there is, because yes. if you think about it, there's, you know, there's a lot of maturation that happens in, in, you know, that like initial season of adulthood and, you know, married life or, um, you know, like career stability, like all of those things that we think of when we think of like being ready for motherhood. And yet at the same time, we know that there's never a magic window where right. you are actually ready. Yes. <laughs> right. And we weren't we weren't ready to adopt either. We weren't yeah. ready to have Stevie and we weren't nope. ready to have Silas and <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but we figured it out. Wow. So yeah. you adopt from Ethiopia. What was yes. that process like? It was it was as intense as, as pregnancy and labor for sure. Mm-hmm. But um it took us about eighteen months to get him home. So and we um we didn't have a very specific age range that we were interested in. Um, we imagined that 
we probably weren't going to be given a baby because that wasn't we had not specifically requested that. And um, I think we had said four or under, and we had chose that age because it was like, how could we be parents of a child much older than four? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's not biologically, you know, probable. And so we wanted to, you know, be a typical age parent for this child. And so, um, so I think we said four or under, and we imagined that he would definitely be four or she, he or she would be four. Um, And so, uh, as with a lot of international adoption, as the process went on, we found out that his age was not definite. We did not really know how old he was because they had, I think they originally said he was three mm. and we were like, great. And then when we got his health information, it was like, are you sure he's three? Because he's really small. Um, and it turns out that at the time they gave us the referral, he, he was 18 months. So was Stevie. Mm. So they're, they're five weeks apart. Um, and was it ever verified what his actual birth date was, or is it still kind of no? Ambiguous? Yeah, we we don't know for sure what his birthday is, but it does seem like that's pretty correct at least. Yep. Um, Developmentally, that, over huh. the years, it kind of corroborates. It, right, they're yeah. the they're the exact same size. They're the right. They're the same height, and they're developmentally kind of on the same path. And yep. they do very much seem like they're the exact same age. Um, mm-hmm. My my daughter calls them mismatched twins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cute. Yeah, sweet. So so it took about eighteen months. So by the time you get him home, he's three. Yes, they're both yeah. almost three. Yeah, when we brought them home, yeah. Um, and we we very much had a sense that our family was complete then at the time, mm-hmm. um, which I agree to question later. But um, but at the time that felt right, like we had. It felt very full circle that we had had yeah. a child biologically and we had adopted a child and, mm-hmm. and that felt right for our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did your daughter handle the transition to having another, not just not just another human, but another human that is, you know, you're helping them adapt to this crazy new environment and, you know, you're yeah. kind of in this intense bonding right. period and right. all of that. You know, beautifully, like I, I think um, – it probably would have been a harder transition to bring home a newborn baby that I mm-hmm. had just birthed and needed, you know, 100% of my attention all the time. I can see, you know, in sibling sets how that jealousy sets in and stuff like that. Well, she had a playmate. She had somebody that was exactly her age. And yeah. um, she actually ended up learning more of his language than he did of hers, of ours. <laughs> and so they would communicate in... Uh, in their language, that language instead. I, one time we went to the grocery store and the, the cashier was like, what, um, are, are they speaking another language? And I just teared up and I was like, they are, and I can't make them stop. <laughs> I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably slowed down his, um, his vocabulary and things like that because she like was constantly talking for him and things like that. But she never really had a lot of jealousy or anything that she, and she doesn't know any different. I mean, she's never had a biological sibling before, so she doesn't Mm -hmm. know what it's like for me to bring a new baby home. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But she, she did. She adjusted very well. If you are comfortable telling, I would like to hear a little bit about how your family reacted to the experience of bringing Silas home. Sure, yeah. sure. 
Well, um, both my husband and I, our parents were extremely supportive and excited. And I know at least my parents, probably not his either, were not surprised. Um, mm-hmm. They were kind of, you and I discussed a little bit about the Enneagram. So I'm, yep. I'm an Enneagram 8, which probably should come with like some dun 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 like music behind it <laughs> maybe y'all can edit that in later I don't know <laughs> um, but uh oh my goodness. but uh so they were like this is just you know her next cause like she's moving on to this new thing she's passionate about just tell her don't get in her way kind of thing <laughs> and uh so they weren't surprised at all very excited very supportive and and um so adopting from Ethiopia so Silas is black and um we lived in rural Alabama Mm-hmm. And now we live in rural Tennessee, and um, there was certainly a lot of hurdles to jump through as far as race goes, one of which was my very own grandparents had yeah. a very difficult time, um, my grandfather specifically, with um, with Silas being black, and that ended up kind of ending our relationship with mm-hmm. him. It was, it was. It was very hard. still was hard, and, and they've passed away now. Um, those grandparents have. But my mother's parents, however, um, were excellent and probably had a history of of having racist feelings, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, goodness, I mean, my, my grandfather that is still alive, he just, you can't get him to not kiss him right on the face as soon as he sees the kids, you know. He's just, yeah. he has completely done a, a shift there and has been wonderful to them. Mm. Um, so mostly, mostly wonderful bringing him home, but you know, there's, there were certainly hurdles there as well. Yeah. I think it just goes to show that, you know, research shows that with anything that is, that we are prejudiced against, whether Mm -hmm. that's, you know, race or, um, you know, anything lifestyle related or, you know, sexual orientation or whatever, that so much of it just has to do with exposure. And so when you grow up in these rural communities that are maybe isolated or mm-hmm. out of, you know, the the way of culture as a whole, that it's it's truly just unfamiliarity and and comfort that creates that that prejudice. And so it goes to show that many people, when they are exposed to something that's unfamiliar, especially if it's something that they that they are repeatedly exposed to, then they're able to shift that perspective. And then there are also some people that just can't, you right. know, for whatever reason, right. whatever it is in their brain has just metastasized to the point of, right. you know, yeah. it's not, it's not malleable anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's so multi-layered when it's like, I mean, I feel women have shared that feeling from their families just with adoption, period. Right. Not from another culture right. or someone who has a different skin yeah. and color, but just that it's hard for their families to understand and accept these children into their mind. Like they're, they're so willing to accept a biological child, no questions asked, but some people have never had the experience of seeing the enrichment or the growth of a family through adoption. And so they have a hard time mapping their mind around it or, yeah. you know, then they've heard this one experience or, and they just bring so much more baggage to the table. And we just give so much grace for biological birth and parenthood. We're like, oh, well, whatever your kid becomes, like, he's your kid. But if mm-hmm. you adopted this kid, then we have all these reservations and these concerns about what could what could happen 10 years from now, 12 years from now, and instead of that, like, baseline of openness, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. right. And I think you were doing something on so many levels that could be difficult for people who've never had exposure to adoption, mm-hmm. international adoption, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, 
right. Ethiopian culture. Right. Yeah. It's kind of tough. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we were, Gabe and I were very fortunate in that scenario that our families were for the most part. So open and welcoming to Silas and uh, he's an easy kid to love. It, it, it's not difficult to love him by yeah. any stretch, but, um, he fit in so quickly as just one of us and, um, and not everyone has that experience. And, and certainly, uh, Silas is, is fairly, um, typical, um, developmentally and, and, a lot of times that's not the case mm-hmm. in adoption and that, that poses different kinds of complications or, or even just hurdles to go through. Yeah, for sure. I remember you saying that your parents even, that what happened with your grandparents, it shifted mm-hmm. their relationship with each other. And then you right. guys all ended up moving together yes. to Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. Well, so that was happening. Um, us moving to Tennessee was happening soon after we found out that my grandfather was not going to be supportive um, of, of us. And my, my parents lived next door to my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And we were, um, my husband and I were planning on building a house in between their two houses. So we were just a really tight family. And uh, when that happened and we started considering jobs in another state, um, and Gabe, Gabe took the job that he did, uh, my parents were like, cool, we're, we're coming too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they put a for sale sign in the yard and came with us. And, um, that was just, that was about as big of an act of support as they could, yeah, they could throw huge. us. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And to not only have their emotional and like psychological support, but to have their physical support. Like they're yes. saying, Hey, we're, we're like, where you go, I go, your family's mm-hmm. my family. Like we're coming with you. Right. That's and I, really I don't think that I could have pursued midwifery if they weren't that close. Mm-hmm. Um, they live about seven miles from us and can, are retired and I'm an only child. So that's part of why they were able to just drop everything and move with, there wasn't like yeah. another sibling that was like, wait, why are you going with her? Right. But <laughs> so, so they have, have kept the kids and been super supportive of midwifery when I, we you know when I've needed them, which is it, this, this career is so demanding. I needed, I needed so that unpredictable. Support. So unpredictable. Yeah, absolutely. They've stepped in and filled gaps that I, I needed. Hmm. filled for sure. That's so great. Hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what brought you to, because now it is, your kids are like 10, right? They'll, they're almost 10. They'll be 10 this summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So 10 years later, you are kind of embarking on a very new and different journey of motherhood. What is, yes. what brought you to this point? And tell us what's going on. Sure. Okay. So, so uh, probably, um, Ever since we moved to Tennessee, whatever year that was, I think that was 2011, we have we have kicked around um, the possibility of having more kids. And what I always would come back to is that it's not really that I want more kids. It's it's that I want to redo my birth. Hmm. And um, that that kind of kept coming up and kept coming up. And it was like, well, that's not a good reason to have more kids just so you can yeah. be pregnant and give birth again. <laughs> And so I started considering um, surrogacy, and I actually applied to be a surrogate with an agency, and um, they, I don't know that they completely matched me with this couple, but we kind of started email discussing the possibility of me being their surrogate, and um, 
that they came back with something like, you know, we'd really rather you just schedule an induction. That would make it really easy for everybody to be there, you know, when you give birth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, that's what we did last time. I'm not doing that. And, <laughs> and you know, if if we're already not on the same page about what kind of birth, it, this is not going to go that great. And yeah. so that didn't work out. Um and then, uh, you know, after a little while, the agency kind of said, hey, you know, you want an out-of-hospital birth. You've got all kinds of, like, super holistic ideas about labor and birth, and um, we don't really have any parents to match with you. And I yeah. thought, gosh, I, here I thought I was such a great candidate for surrogacy. I felt so healthy and everything, but I guess I'm not. Well, I'm so glad that things didn't work out <laughs> mm. back then um, because so so not long after that, uh, my husband and I were, after all that kind of fell through, my husband and I were having lunch with another couple, and I had helped them with their birth at the farm. Um, and we were just talking about kind of this whole thing, the possibility of, um, uh, well, well, we were talking about how, how I had given birth, I think, that that my birth, about my birth story. And the husband was very intuitive, but also like me and kind of blunt. And he, um, and this doesn't sound very kind, but it was, he said, so what I'm hearing from you is you're going to all of these births and women are birthing these babies so primally and you're telling me you feel like a fraud because you didn't give birth that way. Hmm. And I had never put like thought of it in those words before, but Hmm. that was exactly how I felt. And um, I was like, you know, yeah, I guess so. And he said, well, how are you going to deal with that? Because you can't just go through life helping all these people give birth with that feeling. And you can't drag that into other people's births. And what I realized was I was really trying to use surrogacy as a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And I'd never felt right um, not being unhappy about the birth experience I had with Stevie because overall things seemed like Turned they had fine. go. Yeah. 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 We mm-hmm. were both safe and I didn't necessarily feel traumatized by that experience. And I realized that it was my own lack of, um, research that probably led to things going the way that they did. And, um, so I didn't feel like I, it was anything I could pitch fit about, but here I was trying to redeem my birth experience mm-hmm. with surrogacy, and that was not healthy for me. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized was I've I've actually got to process my birth on this its is, own. Oh my gosh, this is so like. <laughs> I mean, we, we've been talking so much with women lately about this, not, I mean, you know, the details a little different, not considering surrogacy, but mm-hmm. really just like what it looks like to hold a birth experience that mm-hmm. is, that doesn't, doesn't feel right, doesn't fit. There's trauma there for whatever reason, even if it doesn't seem like there should be, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just so incredibly powerful to be able to hold both grief and joy at the same time, like to grieve and experience like that. Well, yes, of course you're grateful that you have a healthy baby and you're so happy and glad that your body is fine and that, you know, everybody's fine. And yet there, there was, there's loss there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, so, so I kind of started trying to like really process my birth experience again and, um, and, and think about like, 
what that allows me to bring to the table as a midwife, mm. that what that experience, that experience truly is what led me to be a midwife. And so like what I bring to the table because I had that experience. Um, most of the midwives at the farm that I work with had their babies on the farm, you know, in yep. spiritual midwifery, like the whole shebang. Yep. And, um, but, and I, I bring something different yeah. and that's, that's good and that's okay. And so after, after some time and some, um, thought, I finally got to a place where I actually felt really proud of my birth story. And mm-hmm. I felt, um, when people would say, oh, did you have your kids here on the farm? I was really happy to tell them, no, I didn't. And here's, here's how it did go. I had my children through adoption and I had my children in a hospital and here's what I learned from that experience. And, um, and so I got to what I felt like was a much healthier place when it came to my yeah. to my birth story, and I no longer wanted to just have. I we I didn't every other month tell Gabe. I think I want to I want to talk about having kids again. <laughs> <laughs> I finally laid that to rest. Um, and and same honestly, the same with surrogacy. I kind of laid that to rest as well um, until. Uh, one day I just woke up and I mentioned it to Gabe again. I said, I, I, um, I really kind of am still interested in surrogacy, but it's, it's kind of different this time. Like I really feel like a great vessel for a baby. Like I feel like I've, I'm like, my health is really good yeah. right now. And, um, like, have you seen this vessel? Right. <laughs> Check this vessel out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so it, it kind of just popped into my mind again. And it just, I, I very much, um, care about families that cannot have, mm-hmm. have children for whatever reason, whatever their reason is for not being able to carry a child. Um, I care about those families. I come across those families at work a lot. And um, anyway, so it was a bit on our mind. And um, and uh, my boss, Deborah, called me from the farm clinic one day uh, on my cell phone. And she said, hey. Um, and did you mention this to anyone yes, besides Gabe? So I had mentioned it. Well, back two years ago when I applied right. wrong People reasons. People knew at that time. Deborah knew then. Yeah. But no, I had, just Gabe and I had discussed it you know, these, these couple years later. And, uh, Deborah, so Deborah calls and she says, Hey, um, I don't know if this is something that you're still interested in at all, but this guy just called the farm and, um, he's a single guy and he is looking for a surrogate and he called the farm midwifery center because he wants someone who is kind of like-minded to us as far as nutrition and health and birth. And, you know, he wants someone who's interested in a home, home birth. Hmm. And, uh, and she, and he just have to know Deborah to know this was a little, um, this comment struck me as, as different from her, but she said, I just have a really good feeling about this. Oh, do Hmm. you? (laughs) That's, that's (laughs) awesome. And so, um, so anyway, we, we connected and, and started talking and things went really well and fairly quickly. And, um, and we ended up being a great match. And so I am. 19, 19 weeks pregnant. Yes. With his baby. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So I really want to ask you, I know that there's, there's confidentiality around your relationship with your intended parent and all of that, sure. but I'd love to hear just even some of the actual logistics of being pregnant as a surrogate, like right. how you get pregnant, what, it, yeah. what your relationship 
looks like in terms of involvement and who makes what decisions and right. and then and then of course we need to talk about how it feels. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, so okay, technically I'm I'm a gestational carrier. Mm -hmm. Um the word surrogate or traditional surrogate typically is used for someone who um the embryo is made with their egg. So the the person carrying the baby, it's it's their egg. Um, someone's sperm, either a sperm donor or the or the intended father of the baby. Um, so, but but I'm a gestational carrier, so there was another egg donor involved. Okay. Um, my intended. So there's no genetic involvement. I you. yeah, I'm not I'm not related biologically to this child at all. Okay. Um, so uh, the the process is a little um, more simple than if they did do an egg retrieval from me, and uh, you know that that requires a lot more medication, a lot more time, um, things like that. Yeah. But um, so we uh, they reviewed my medical records, um, made sure that I was like really in this for the right reasons, and. Um, we, uh, and was there an agency involved or this is, yes. yes. So he was already with an agency, um, trying to find a surrogate and, um, they just didn't quite have very many folks who were interested in the same, like-minded to him. They yeah. were very interested in the same kind of things that he was. Um, and so do you think also just because he's a single male? Possibly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that po possibly that's maybe not quite as romantic as being able to carry a baby for a husband and wife couple, yeah. you know, um, that is for some reason that that tends to be what what you think of when you think of a yeah. of being a, a surrogate or a gestational carrier is you're carrying for um, a couple. Yeah, a couple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Specifically, like a, a heterosexual yeah, couple, I think, of, is probably the ideal for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, but not for me. I was very excited about the idea of a single parent or a homosexual couple. Parenting is, is difficult enough as it is, and these folks can parent just as well as anybody else. Yeah. And so, um, and so, uh, yeah. And so he's um, he's a, he's got a little bit of a different um, idea of what he wants in a surrogate from what the agency was able to find. And so we connected in this, this kind of different way. And, um, but then we decided we really still wanted to use the agency to hold our hand through the process. Yeah. And, and we're glad that we did, um, because they've, they've certainly helped us a lot through the process. Um, so I, I want to say that was like November that he and I talked for the first time. And we did the embryo transfer in January. So Okay, so just a couple months. It was just a couple of months. It wasn't long. Um, we both agreed on um, as low of a med cycle as possible. We weren't interested in doing a whole lot of medications if we could help it. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I took estrogen and progesterone. Those were the only, um, the only medications I had to take. A lot of gestational carriers end up taking birth control so that the um, – so that the reproductive endocrinologist can kind of like almost micromanage your cycle hmm. um, and uh, and other medications as well that I, I was able to skip, thankfully. And the first yep. time we did the embryo transfer, it worked. And um, and we're, we're super fortunate about that because I'm sure the, the doctor would have been like, and this time you're doing it my way. <laughs> but, right, if it hadn't worked out that right. first time. Yeah. Right. What is – maybe I'm sure you – Either of you know more than I do about what the statistics are on how, you know, many transfers are typically necessary for it to be viable. Yeah, I, 
I think that this reproductive endocrinologist said that there was about a 60% um, effectiveness in the, in the transfer taking, but then you still are looking at miscarriage rates, you know, mm-hmm. being typical. Um, yeah. Laura, is that what you would expect? Yeah, I think it greatly varies on, you know, age and amount of pregnancies. and But yeah, I've heard anywhere from 50 to 60%. So you, the transfer works, you are, I'm sure, tested pretty early in the process to know that it right. works. Yes. And, and then what does like testing and monitoring look like throughout this pregnancy for you? Sure. Well, before the pregnancy, I had, I think I had maybe three ultrasounds for them just to look at my uterus and see how it was progressing through my cycle mm-hmm. before we went in for the transfer to make sure it was like a real nice fluffy home for this embryo. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then, you know, the transfer is a fairly simple process. It was, it was... I say simple. It was simple on my end. I'm sure it wasn't from an embryologist standpoint, but um, it felt like a pap smear. I mean, that's about how long it took and that's about how it felt and um, fairly simple process. And then three days later, that's so, so weird, but three days later I had a positive pregnancy test Uh, because the embryo was, was not, uh, the embryo was five days old when they put it in. So it was as if I was taking a pregnancy test, you know, eight days after mm-hmm. I conceived. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but then I went in for a blood test a few days after that to confirm that indeed I was pregnant. And um, that was a home pregnancy test that you took? The this? one that I took three yeah. days. Yes. Uh-huh. Wow. It was just one of those kind of early yep. pee sticks. That's all yeah. there was to that. And I kept it to myself for like two days before I told my intended father because I just, I just wanted to make sure that line was yeah. getting darker, you know. How did that feel? I mean, you know, when you're when you're pregnant and you take that first pregnancy test and you get that, like, I mean, obviously the range of emotions is huge because many people are, you know, I mean, you could be trying for a long time or it could be a surprise or it could be yeah. all of the things. But, like, how did that feel in comparison to finding out you were pregnant with Stevie, for oh, example? Much different. It yeah. felt much different. Um, you know, even though we weren't expecting Stevie, um, I just remember like almost feeling like I was going to pass out when I found out Mm -hmm. I was pregnant with her and just this, the, the joy that like went, it was so different than this experience, this experience, I was expecting it to be positive. And so, and honestly, it did not look very positive to start with. I had to look at it under several different lighting situations and take a picture of it and edit (laughs) the picture, you know, to see if I could find that pink line. And I felt like relieved when, I saw that it looked – I was like, oh, thank God. Like, yeah. we, don't, we don't have to go through this again, right. hopefully. Yeah. Um, and I was I was thrilled for my intended father, but the way that you would be thrilled for a friend that tells you that mm. they're pregnant who's been wanting a baby for a long time, yeah. it was just a lot different than when I was pregnant with my own child. Mm-hmm. It was a different feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So – it just is so wild to hear about. Yeah. 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 And so then um, they confirmed with a blood test what I called my intended father before then and told him that I was getting positive home pregnancy tests. He was ecstatic. Um, I think I said, you're, pre- you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's, you know, thrilled and so, so excited. Um, and so then I, I want to say about eight weeks, I flew. He, he lives in Texas and I live in Tennessee. And so um, I flew to Texas to get the embryo transfer done. And then um, I actually flew back to Texas when I was about eight weeks yeah. to that to that reproductive endocrinologist again to have an ultrasound done. 
um, and see the heartbeat and see how things were going. And then that reproductive endocrinologist released me from his care and I stopped medications. I was on progesterone, so I was able to stop progesterone and, um, I've been in the care of Deborah, that same midwife ever since. So awesome. Yeah. So is the plan to birth at the farm? That's right. Yes. Yes. Planning to give birth there. Um, he and I discussed the intended father and I discussed, you know, going closer to where he is Mm -hmm. to give birth, but, um, he, and this is just one of the things that I love about him. And I know that we're a good match for this is because he was like, no, I don't know a lot about birth, but I know that you need to be where you're comfortable. And I bet you're more comfortable there. Mm. Oh, that um, makes like, me. You yeah. bet. I know. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? So he's like, I'll just do my best to get there. I'll try to yeah. get to you and and you stay there. And he, of course, was comfortable with the farm because he, he had called that's how yeah. we, yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's the plan. I'm I'm, I'm going to birth this this child at the farm yeah yeah it's exciting there I'm I'm sure there have been surrogate births at the farm before is that yes and I don't know that I've attended no I've never attended one personally but yes there have been other other um surrogates to live at the farm yeah we're a bit different though you know I think the kind of folks that uh, I think what um, my intended father was finding as he was looking for a surrogate was that people who are really kind of crunchy and into natural childbirth and things like that are not necessarily willing to go through the med cycle mm-hmm. to get pregnant um, with an embryo transfer. And so um, we're a little bit of a different um, situation. He yeah. and I are probably. Um, yeah. 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 And I do think too, you know, at least in my experience working in a hospital, most of the people who are doing surrogacy have to, again, like you're just seeing a reproductive endocrinologist who might then lead you to see a maternal fetal medicine specialist. So you kind of get pushed in the path of like high medicalization right? with surrogacy and gestational carriers, even if maybe that's not your preference. Like I've taken care of mamas who've had home births, but then decided to, you know, be a gestational carrier. And then it's like, they kind of skirted mm-hmm. them actually. She's like, well, I've never had a birth in the hospital. So this is my fifth baby, but I've actually never had one in the hospital. So this is all new for me, you know? And you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, right. Oh yeah. That totally makes sense. So like, let's talk more about what this is going to be like, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. You're, you're Which fit, when, both of you. Yes. Totally. And, and once, once everything was, you know, confirmed that, that the, that it had taken and that at that eight week ultrasound, everything looked normal. There really wasn't, this isn't really any different medically than a typical pregnancy. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of folks want to do more than one embryo at a transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, maybe more common than a single embryo transfer and that um changes that uh, you know then you do end up with maternal fetal medicine involved and yeah. um things like that and that was something that my intended parent was really sure about was that he wanted a single embryo transfer so that we were had our best shot at a low risk birth yeah um and i'm i'm excited that was a priority to him that, that yeah. was important to him yeah i mean it does sound like an incredible fit. You know, we're going to, we're going to be sharing another, another surrogacy story on the podcast. And I think that, you know, obviously there were plenty of factors that they, you know, considered in choosing their surrogate, but I think it was a little bit more like who's available, who will have this baby, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that everyone's, everyone's factors and decision-making processes are different. And there's a spectrum of like high, high, high involvement to like, 
you know, your guy sounds, it's, it's, it's funny because in some ways he's like very open to, okay, well, what is it that you want? Mm -hmm. But in another way, he actually has high preferences. They just happen to align with yours. Right. And I think what was nice about us matching is that, you know, he did have a, a laundry list of things that he wanted in a surrogate, but then once he found that, He's been very trusting yeah. of me and, you know, he's like, ah, oh, you know, you know what to do. That's, that's fine. Whatever you think is, is good mm-hmm. about most things that come up, you know, that that's how he feels. So he really wanted to find somebody that he trusted. And then once he did, it was, it, you know, he, he's much more relaxed about the whole thing. Yeah. That's, that's a really powerful relationship. So yeah. it sounds so rare. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think it is rare. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that many surrogates, honestly. So, yeah. but it does feel rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the, what's the emotional process like? You're now 19 weeks pregnant. And like you said, you take that first pregnancy test. It feels like, you know, you're excited, but like you would be for a friend. Now you've been growing this child in your body, even right. though it's not your child, it's still uh-huh. your body. What does that feel like? Yeah. It, it feels different. It feels very different. Um, I think I set some very intentional emotional boundaries before we got started, like before the embryo transfer. Mm -hmm. But I've actually run into some that I didn't even know I had. Mm. Um, Deborah, my midwife, um, as soon, well, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I wrote, I went to the clinic, to the farm, and on our birth house list, I put myself down for my favorite birth house, like the one that I wanted to deliver in. And uh, I told told her that. And she said, um, she was like, oh, so you're, you're going to deliver here on the farm. And I said, yeah. And she was like, well, I just, I assumed you would have a home birth and that I would come to you because we, we mostly do births on the farm, but if folks live close enough, we can do home births as well. Yeah. And so she was like, I just assumed that you would want to give birth at your home. You have such a big bathtub. Like, why <laughs> why are you coming here instead of letting me come to you? And I was like, oh, but well, this isn't my baby. I don't, I, and I, it, it wasn't something I had really put any thought into huh. consciously, but subconsciously that was like, not my baby. I'm not having it on my turf. Hmm. It, it just didn't quite yep. feel right to me. And not, yep. I mean, I know a lot of surrogates deliver babies at their home, so yep. nothing wrong with that at all. I just, um, just didn't feel like the right. It was a fit. boundary for me that I had. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. That is such a, such a great example of following your intuition, like mm-hmm. something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know or think about. It wasn't even mm-hmm. a conscious thought, really. It just kind of popped up and you were like, okay, I'm going to follow that. Right. Right. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. ask you too now. So you're going through this pregnancy and you are on the other side of your midwifery education or you know, you're still in, how has that changed your experience of being pregnant and listening to your body now that you kind of have this large you know, depth of an understanding and information of what's happening. It's, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly been different. It's been a really good experience on both ends. Like as, as a pregnant woman, it's been nice to know some different things. And, um, sometimes I think I, I know just enough to get me in trouble and bother my mid. I feel like I call my midwife and ask more questions than any of our clients do. I'm like her worst client probably, but, um, but then also at taking care of other women um, in pregnancy, I feel like this different type of empathy mm-hmm. with with them. Like I, like when people say I'm having round ligament pain, I'm like, yes, I know, girl. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, and the last time you were pregnant, you were 20, 21. Right. So there's also a real big difference. I got a solid decade yeah. since then that I feel in my body. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. My first baby I had at 27, and my last baby I had at 35, and uh-huh. it was like a world of difference. Really? Yeah. I mean, I felt like I had aged 30 years. Yes. <laughs> I do as well. I do as well. And I, you know, I'll get out of bed in the morning and I'm like, oh, what am I going to be like when I'm 40 weeks pregnant if I make that much noise yeah. getting up at 19 weeks? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. And, and you are healthy. It's, it, you know, sure. it's, you're, in, you're in great shape. Like you, sure. you're healthy, but it just age makes a difference. It I absolutely mean, does. Biologically, we were supposed to be having children between the ages of 13 and 20. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so, because it, it does feel a lot different, but. Um, but yes, emotionally, it feels different as well. I, this does not feel like my child. And yeah. I, I don't know if I can explain that very well other than that I, it just does not feel like my child. Yeah. Um, he feels like a little buddy, like a like a like like he's just renting my apartment. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. Um, and, I, and I love him and I care about him and I, I um, care very much about his well-being. But, um, but he just does not feel like mine. Yeah. And that's good. Yeah. It yeah. is good. I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of what it will be like to, you know, to release him to mm-hmm. to his father, right? You know, that's a that's a very distinctly yeah unique experience. And right. to prepare yourself, what does it look like to prepare for birth? Obviously, you know, you know what the logistics of the birth that you're planning will look like. Mm-hmm. You know, you're very familiar with the the process. But emotionally, how are you preparing for? You know, there's so much about the birth experience that is, it's, you know, we talk about the primalness of it. We talk about, you know, the labor zone. We talk about the lizard brain. We talk about all these things. Like, right. And so much of that is, it, you know, so much of what powers women through is this sense of connection and anticipation of like their child that they are, it's the right. prize, it's right. the reward, you know? So, so how are you preparing emotionally for that? that process, knowing Uh that the reward is a little different. It is different, right. Um, Yeah, I've spent a lot of time kind of visualizing the birth and how I want it to go, and it always includes the part where I don't have the baby at the mm-hmm. end, you know, it always includes what it's going to be like to, for him to see his baby for the first time. And for me to be able to be like, look, I made this for you. Yeah. And like, just not omitting that from my visualizations, like really focusing on that part of it too. Yeah. And the beauty of that. Um, but, but yeah, other than that, like, you know, I've, I've got a doula that I'm real excited about and, um, I've got like my dream birth house, the one that I wanted, <laughs> and I'm really excited about the actual birth process and thinking about like, do I want to be in the water? Do I want to be out of the water? I'll yeah. decide when I get there. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- that that's been that's been very exciting. Thinking about the birth and planning the birth, and yeah. and the, but then also really focusing on the postpartum phase too because I know it'll be different yeah. um, than it was when I had my own child. Yeah. What are your postpartum plans? Are you are you planning like what's the arrangement with, yeah. with the your intended parent? Yeah, well, he he actually I'm hoping that he'll be here for the birth like, you know, I don't know if he's going to come and wait or if he's going to just try to get here really quickly when he thinks I'm and you know starting up. But um the the hope and the plan is that he's going to catch the baby. Awesome. Um which I think is really special. Yes. I'm really excited that he's that he wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Um and that the, my midwives are so jazzed about that idea and supportive of that. 
Um, but so the birth house that we have has more than one bedroom in it. And so he's planning on staying with the baby in the other bedroom. Um, and for those first couple of days, um, while my milk's coming in, I think the plan is to breastfeed for me to breastfeed the baby. But we have also acknowledged that that might cross an emotional boundary. We don't know. And so, so we've also left it open to maybe not like I might, I might feel like it's a better idea to pump Mm -hmm. and it uh, there at the beginning. And if, if that's how we feel in the moment, that's what we'll do. And he's, he's open to either of those options. Yeah. Is there a length of time that you've discussed for the possibility of breastfeeding or pumping in terms of your commitment to that? So I'll probably only breastfeed, um, you know, for those couple of days before Mm -hmm. he goes home with the baby. And we haven't discussed exactly how long he's staying, but I'm imagining it'll just be a few days before he heads home with the baby. And then I want to pump. And we have not, um, like, committed to anything with each other other than that I want the baby to have breast milk for as long as possible, and so Mm -hmm. does he. And so um, we talked about really shooting for six months. Yeah. And then talking again, like if it's going really well, maybe maybe this baby can just have breast milk for a year, wow. and that would be incredible. Yeah. Um, but if it's not, that's okay too. Like we're yeah. we're just trying to be really open to whatever life throws at us during that time. Breastfeeding is hard. It's hard. Exclusive pumping has got to be harder. I don't know. It's harder. I've I mean, I, I haven't done it either. I have a very close yeah. friend who exclusively pumped for a year. Laura and I both have a close friend and. I have to say, like, I think her commitment and dedication and... So inspiring. I mean, it was... I think that what she did was way harder than Mm. what I have done. Mm. And I just can't even... Yeah, and I, I as I'm saying that I'm like, wait, Sarah's gonna maybe do that for a year, so no, <laughs> I should I should be encouraging. I I, but I, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it just is. It's like it's a whole different thing, and even even I mean, part of like what you're describing is already built into the experience. Mm-hmm. Even even if you were breastfeeding, like even if you live next door and you breastfed the baby for a year you're still, it would still not be your baby. And so there's so much of the breastfeeding journey that like so much of the beauty of it and so much of the reward cycle or the, 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 um, the feedback loop is Mm -hmm. that like you're giving to your baby, but your, your baby's giving back to you in, you know, all of the, um, you know, the cooing and the snuggling and the oxytocin and all of those things. Right. right? And so when you're pumping, you don't have that. No, You already are going to have like a you know, a different experience of that doing this for a child that is biologically not yours. Right. You know, so it's, I mean, you're just already signing up for something that is incredible. Well, thank you. And yeah, it is, it is, it is going to be different. I mean, I remember several times breastfeeding Stevie thinking I would quit right yeah. now if I didn't love holding her like this so yeah. much or, or, you know, I love that I have a reason to leave the room with her yeah. on a regular basis <laughs> and go, go sit by myself with I her like and, and this is going to be like, you know, here me yep. and my pump go off into. It's going to be just, just it's going to be different, yep. and and I I don't expect it to be as warm and fuzzy by yep. any stretch. But yep. um, I believe in breastfeeding for my own body, like that that it there has healing benefits for me, mm-hmm. and that and I want this baby to have my breast milk if it can yep. um, too. So I think it's a good decision for us, and we were we are going to play it by ear. That's what yep. we're going to do. <laughs> That sounds like the best of both yeah. worlds. Like you know, you know what is ideal. You know what's beneficial. Mm-hmm. You know what is 
you know, the best case scenario for the situation and that you, and you are also holding the fact that there are sometimes things that we just can't control. And that could be physical factors. That could be emotional factors. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Right. Yes. It's just such a unique journey that you're on right now and such a beautiful part of your story. And Mm. yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us. I just feel so so special Mm -hmm. to be a part of it in that way. And it's what a cool thing for you to share with your community, like the women that you work with too. Mm, Yeah. I'm excited to share it. It is, um, I think it's something that a lot of people have actually really thought about and considered and maybe didn't know the logistics of it. So I'm excited to share about it. Yeah. I mean, we, we had, it's funny because it was before I even ever reached out to you, but Mm -hmm. we had talked just kind of in passing one time about, we should really have we should really have a surrogate on the show. And then within the next two weeks, we randomly had someone email us that did not have, like that we had not said anything to the universe or social media or anything about this. And someone reached out to us and said, you know, we just, we just adopted or not adopted. We just went to, they went to Georgia and got their baby. And we're going to share that story on the show too. Um, And, and then I reached out to you and it was like, it all just kind of came together. So we're so excited to share both sides. Oh yeah. I can't, I can't wait to hear the other other as well. Yeah. And it it is, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not rare. Obviously there are many, many surrogates, but Mm -hmm. it's just not a story that we hear about. And most people don't know someone that has, you know, that has been a surrogate or, or had a surrogate. And, and if they do, they maybe don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's just a, an important, an important part of this whole journey to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, because it is one of the ways that people have babies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask you as we're wrapping up if there's anything you want to share with our listeners. And even, you know, as as I reflect back on what you've shared with us today, the thing that really stands out is how you, you know, you had this opportunity to process your own birth um, grief and birth trauma through something that was, you know, maybe inappropriate. And then you, you, you were, you were able to step back from that and choose a different healing path Mm -hmm. and really process that in a way that, that kind of brought you to a different level in your work, in your life. And now to this really beautiful experience that you're having now, is there anything you would say to women who, who maybe feel like they have to justify the feeling of loss or grief that they have around, around past birth experiences that didn't go the way they planned? Um, anything that you would share in right. in relation to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you are that person who has had a birth experience that doesn't settle with you very well, that you, you really have to tune out the outside voices saying, but you're safe or mm-hmm. but you, you, um, you know, no one hurt you. Like, you know, those, those, those kinds of voices are not valid. Your baby's okay. Your baby's Just okay. Be grateful. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what, whatever your story is like, and however you feel about it is, is valid. And it's, it's, it's worth, it deserves your attention. Um, it deserves you to process it. If you had a, you know, your dream birth, if everything you wanted went, went well, um, you still want to process that birth. Like mm-hmm. you still, you still need to, to think about how it affected you and mm-hmm. how you're going to carry that story with you for the rest of your life. And, um, what are you proud of and what are you excited about, about that experience and what hurts you about that experience? Um, and then also to, to birth workers, um, I, I would say like, n- not, not to tell people their birth story, 
um, quickly. You know, it takes, I say women, but birthing people, um, time to process their own birth story. And Mm. and I think that sometimes it's harmful for um, other birth whether it's a doula or, you know, anyone else that was in that experience to feed them, oh, your birth was perfect. Everything went great. Yeah. Um, uh, you said this and then you did this and that was so funny. And, you know, to feed them this, the, and it this may, take, it may yeah. take them a while to drop your version of the story. Mm, and so wow. um, allow people the time that they need to process their birth. Let them tell you about their birth experience and don't say, oh, no, that's not how that went. Yeah. This is how, you know, or even try to reframe it positively. I think we're so tempted to do that when someone tells us, you know, as a birth worker, as a woman in this space, who's always hearing stories, it's, it's easy to be tempted to say, well, you know, here's how, how you could think about that positively. And, and even that is dangerous. Yes. I think you're right. I think you're right. Like just giving people the space they need to process their, Mm -hmm. their birth experience. Yeah. Really listening. Yeah. Yeah. Just listening. Mm -hmm. Just listening. Right. I think that's maybe the best thing we can do for somebody. Yeah. Um, not, not tell them how they're supposed to feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we'll end with that because that was, (laughs) that was really perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story. We cannot wait to share it. Thank you. It's going to be awesome. Um, you can find Sarah on Instagram. We will share her, uh, link to her Instagram account in our show notes. Um, is there anything else, anywhere else that people can find you that you want to share with people? Yeah. uh, My website's sarahrosser.com. Sarah without an H R O S S E R. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook, where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Laura and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period.